We are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians this morning. And Paul spent uh, the entirety of chapter 2, which we are ending this morning, stoking joy and gratitude in the hearts of his readers by reminding them of the glorious transformation they have experienced in Jesus Christ. You were dead, Paul says to them in verse 1, but God made you alive. You were by nature children of wrath, but God has shown you kindness in Jesus Christ instead. You were walking in sin, but God has prepared good works for you to walk in now. God redeems human life and confers dignity upon us by loving us, not because we deserve his love. We don't, but merely because he has decided to act graciously toward us. Our worth lies in his love of us. And it's a truth that when allowed to sink down deep into your heart, which is Paul's very prayer for the Ephesians, when the, the gracious love of God sinks down deep into your hearts, it produces life that, that issues forth in, in joy and obedience and boldness. And this is the sort of re response that Paul hopes to see from the Christians living in Ephesus. And he devotes significant time towards this purpose because the Christians in Ephesus were in need of encouragement. There was pressure on them, as there always is on every Christian, to minimize a, a betrayal, a slight towards Jesus in order to serve some expedient purpose in life, to preserve an income, to avoid being considered a cultural pariah, an, an outcast, or in the most extreme case, to save your own life. But Paul is trying to get them to see that God is greater than all things and is able to restore in eternity what was lost or sacrificed in this one. And in particular, Paul emphasizes the great grace of God in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Because as one scholar points out, the language of grace, the, the word grace, surrounded people who lived in the urban areas of the Roman Empire in the first century. Grace was a common term used in inscriptions to describe the massively generous benefactions of the Julio-Claudian emperors. All around the Ephesians, engraved in the stone on their buildings and on the metal of the coins in their pockets, was a reminder that the emperor was the gracious source of these good things. And implicit in this reminder was also the subtle threat of their swift retraction, should the Ephesians refuse to thank the emperor by worshiping him. The emperor had the power to give and to take away. But Paul liberally, liberally pe peppers grace throughout his letter to remind the Ephesians that God's benefaction towards his people has, out has outstripped anything Rome has to offer. Rome has only temporal goods to offer, but Jesus Christ, eternal ones, is a short-sighted fool who sacrifices his soul to gain even the whole world. And Paul is praying that the Ephesians will see this truth with the eyes of their hearts as he tells them of another gracious gift from God. In verse 11, he begins, and he reminds them of their corporate and ethnic exclusion from the redemptive work of God in this world. Remember, he begins, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles 
These are the people who are who are not Jewish. So you and me, the Gentiles were not the people whom God chose as the channel through which he would redeem the entire world. That distinction went rather to the Jewish people. In his divine wisdom and, and, and free choice, God chose the Jewish people to be the instrument of his blessing to the world. This was explicitly stated in the covenant, the commitment that God made to Abraham, the father of Israel. In Genesis 12, God spoke to Abraham and he said to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the beginning, Israel's God-given mission was to bless the world through, through the expansion of their kingdom over which God was king. They were to invite people in to know their God who stood out as unique among all the gods that the other nations worshipped. This is a regular point that's made throughout all of the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The God of the Jews was entirely different from all the other gods of the ancient Near Eastern world. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses makes the point quite explicitly when he rhetorically asks, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Their love for their unique God against all the other gods was supposed to manifest in a, a desire for other people to know him as well. But instead, it had the opposite effect. Israel drew in on itself, and instead of building bridges into the surrounding Gentile world, they built walls that were intended to create separation between themselves and the surrounding Gentile world, and consequently, between the Gentiles and God. As long as Israel maintained a, a possessive posture, the, the Gentiles would remain excluded from the work of redemption that God was doing in this world. It was a hopeless reality for them, which Paul illustrates in the stark terms of verse 12. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was little hope this, this would change, too. Because in verse 11, we see just how far Jewish-Gentile relations had devolved. Paul acknowledges in that verse that the Jews had developed a derogatory name, a racial slur, to refer to the Gentiles. In the translation printed in your bulletin, it's tactically translated as the uncircumcision. But more accurately, the Jews called the Gentiles forcing. Reach out to them in love? That was out of the question. They were calling them names. There was animosity between these two groups. In both verses 14 and 16, Paul characterized their relationship as hostile. But Jesus changed all that. The Son of God was born a Jew in order to fulfill the mission that God had given to the Jewish people, to bring the nations back into relationship with God. As Paul puts it in verse 13, to bring near those who were far off. And what Jesus revealed and what Paul is preaching here is that it wasn't just those who were far off who were in need of redemption, but those who were near as well. Both Gentiles and Jews needed to be brought into relationship with God. He says this explicitly in verse 17. Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Those who were near needed to have peace preached to them as well because they were just as lost. 
And it's easy for us to see and understand how it's those who are far off, the prodigal sons of the world, as it were, needed to be saved. They're the ones whose sins are obvious, whose rebellion is explicit, who squander their inheritance in reckless living, to quote from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's much more difficult for us, however, to see how it's possible to be just as lost and to have never left home, to be an insider who is just as lost as the outsider. And we get a hint at how this is possible when in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus made both Jew and Gentile one and broke down the wall of hostility between them by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus took aim at the law. Because the Jews believed that through rigid observance of the law, they could secure their righteous standing before God. They believed that being good and moral people, they would be accepted by God. They thought they could earn his love. But so many people, both religious and non-religious, still believe today. There are many problems with this, but the biggest problem with believing that God's love is earned through obedience is that you you begin to believe that God owes you something. You come to resent the generous grace of God when he has mercy upon people you view as prodigal sons. Like the older son in the parable of the prodigal son, you, you stand outside the party pouting and scoffing and when inside, there's a celebration that the prodigal son has returned and the father has graciously welcomed him back home. You can't celebrate the repentance of a prodigal because it's a threat to your own position. When you believe that, that God's love is earned. Believing that it is earned through goodness or morality breeds hostility towards others. Because your standing with God is, is secure only insofar as you are better than the next guy. It's like the old joke about not running a bear which says you don't have to be faster than the bear to get away. You just have to be faster than the guy next to you. Is the same logic applied to God's judgment. You don't even need to be perfect. You just need to be better than the next guy, which means you need, you need people to continue sinning in order for you to feel secure in God's love of you. It's twisted. It also means that God's grace becomes offensive because it violates the whole system of righteousness that you've constructed. He doesn't play by the rules when he has mercy upon people worse than you. His mercy almost makes God less righteous than you are because he associates with sinners, which was, of course, the accusation that the Pharisees made of Jesus. You can see now how you can be near, quote-unquote near, and yet incredibly far from the heart of God, can't you? You can appear good and moral, close to God, and yet be lost altogether. This dynamic was the reason for the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century world. It's a dynamic that still plays out in the church today, only now it doesn't fall along ethnic lines per se. Jesus takes aim at this whole system by abolishing the law, to use Paul's terminology, and by showing us that salvation is not for those who look to their own lives for security, but for those who look to Jesus' life alone. We are saved by grace. It wasn't enough in God's eyes to merely have been born a Jew. It wasn't enough to have merely been circumcised in the flesh by human hands, as Paul puts it in verse 11. What was necessary was the inner circumcision 
of the heart, a procedure carried out by divine hands. This is what the outer circumcision of the flesh was intended to teach the Jewish people all along. Their hearts needed to be changed. And it was a problem that was common to both Gentile and Jew. And so Jesus began to break down the hostility between these two groups by showing them that they actually shared a common plight. All of humanity, whether Gentile or Jew, is born guilty before God. Remember that at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, the problem with humanity is one of nature. By nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, our relationship with God is one characterized by hostility. Our plight is the same. And therefore, the solution to our common plight is shared. The solution is none other than the cross, the death of Jesus Christ. He began destroying the hostility between Gentile and Jew by first showing them that both Gentile and Jew were displeasing to God by nature. Together, they were part of a fallen humanity whose relationship with God was hostile. And Jesus completed his destruction of this hostility that existed between them when he destroyed the hostility that existed between humanity and God. The Son of God became a human being for this very purpose. Being, full, being both fully God and fully human, he was able to both represent and redeem us from our fallen nature. He died for us, and in his redemption of humanity, he destroyed the hostility between Jew and Gentile as well, because through him we all, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father, as Paul says in verse 18. There is a diversity of people, but only one way to God available to all of them. This is why when Jesus died, the massive curtain in the temple that separated the Jews from the Gentiles was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore the curtain that separated us from one another. At the same time, he was destroying the sin that separated us from him. Jesus is, therefore, our peace, as Paul says. He brought about peace with God, and he made peace between even the most divided people groups possible. It's in Jesus Christ that we have common ground to, to stand with people who are different from us, even if they refuse to stand with us. It gives us a common history that is complicated, no doubt, but it is a story that we, to which we can all belong. It's our story, our shared past, whether Jew or Gentile. In the last three verses of chapter 2, Paul adopts the image of a building to further describe this new unity that God has created in Christ. More specifically, this building is a, a temple in which God dwells. There are many and diverse stones, but God is building us into a temple that has the apostles and prophets as its foundation and Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. But the last verse, verse 22, reveals that the building remains unfinished. He's still building to this day. One scholar writes, the church is already the temple in which God dwells, yet it is at the same time a building under construction, where through their relationship to Christ and to one another, believers are still being shaped into a fit sanctuary for God. God is still working to bring people to himself through Jesus Christ. Brick by brick, he is still building a temple in this world, the church, which is growing in our midst despite the persecution she faces throughout the world. And he's building this temple out of a diverse people who have found Christ the ground on which they can stand in order to overcome their many cherished distinctions. And as part of this building, therefore, we must, first and foremost, identify ourselves as Christians 
in order to create the space necessary for those who are different from us to be able to stand as our equals in Christ. We're not contending with each other for God's love. No, God has loved us and made us one in Christ. We are now striving together side by side to please him with hearts full of joy and, and wills that stubbornly stand in the face of opposition. And in this unified position, we must allow no modifier to stand in front of the word Christian lest we divide what Christ has made one. There's no identity or nationality that can come before Christian. We are Christians, full stop. We are Christians who are also Americans, not American Christians. Our Christianity must come first so that the nations can be united in Christ. We are Christians who are white or black or brown, but not white Christians or Hispanic Christians. Our Christianity must come first so that true racial reconciliation can happen in Christ. We must begin to define ourselves differently. Not abandoning our specific traditions or heritage, but understanding that they are secondary to our identity in Christ. In Christ, Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In him, we stand shoulder to shoulder. So let us work to reflect that reality on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.